You're listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. My guest today is Marion Tupi. He's a senior policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and the editor of humanprogress.org. Marion's a co-author, along with Gail L. Pooley, of a paper that was released back in December about the Simon Abundance Index, a new way to measure resource abundance. Marion, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we uh, dive into the details of the paper, let's start with a little bit of background of the person uh, that the Simon Abundance Index refers to. Uh, Who is Julian Simon, and why is he an important figure in the way we think about resources? So Julian Simon was a uh, professor at the University of Maryland. He was an economist, and um, he died far too young in 1998. But prior to that, um, Julian Simon uh, was a uh, uh, was a participant in one of the most consequential debates in economics in the 20th century. So the background goes something like this. In the 1960s and into the 1970s, there emerged a fundamental worry uh, amongst some people that the world was simply going to run out of resources. And that was brought about uh, primarily by uh, the <clears throat> increase in the price of uh, oil and the, the crisis of 1974, 1978, and then 1979. But also back in the 1960s, uh, a lot of people worried that uh, resources were going to um, going to go dry uh, because of uh, of population growth. And the the important person here was Bob Ehrlich, uh, who is still alive, a professor of biology at Stanford University. And Ehrlich, in 1968, published a book called The Population Bomb, and basically he wrote, as population increases, resources will run out. Enter Simon, who said that's not going to happen. As population of the world increases, uh, people will not only come to the world with empty stomachs, but also with uh, uh, minds. Um, and those minds are going to pursue innovations and um, uh, new ideas, and those innovations are going to increase productivity, and we are going to be able to get our hands on more resources or alternatively find replacement uh, for current technologies so that uh, at the end of the day resources are actually going to become more abundant rather than less abundant and this debate between Ehrlich and Simon went to and fro throughout the 70s until in 1980 Simon asked Ehrlich to a wager uh, whereby uh, whereby they would bet on whether prices of five commodities would increase over the next uh, 10 years or decrease. And Ehrlich accepted this wager, and the wager came to to fruition in 1990, and Ehrlich lost the wager because, in fact, resources had become more abundant rather than less. So the Simon uh, Abundance Framework, which you guys developed, helps us think through that old dispute between Simon and Ehrlich, um, but it controls for a few other things like inflation and the uh, growth in hourly wages, in order to give us a better idea of how how much more abundant our resources are relative to changes in population. Um, can you walk our yeah. audience through uh, the methodology of uh, that framework and lay out the different elements that go into it? Sure. 
So let's start with uh, the Simon Ehrlich, the, the, the wager, the, the original one. The original one uh, did something very simple, and that was to adjust the prices of uh, resources by inflation. So Ehrlich picked five resources, zinc, tungsten, three more, I can't remember what they were. And all they looked at was whether the inflation-adjusted prices in 1990 were higher than in 1980. So I think that's pretty much understandable to to a, a lay listener or viewer or reader. Um, you know, you cannot take nominal prices of anything because you have inflation going on. So you adjust prices by inflation and see if they are higher or lower, and that's what's called the real price of something, right? And uh, Simon and Ehrlich discovered that uh, real prices were lower in 1990 than in 1980. But when Gail and I uh, looked at the wager, we thought it was um, uh, problematic. And it was problematic because we felt that uh, uh, Simon was too generous to his critics. And he was too generous for the following reason. It's all good and well to adjust prices by inflation. But uh, in fact, incomes are rising at a faster pace than inflation, right? And that that happens because of productivity gains, uh, both in terms of individual lifespans, but also in terms of entire populations. We become more productive over time because we become uh, more knowledgeable, uh, we get access to better technologies that help us to be uh, more productive. And as a consequence, incomes tend to increase at a faster pace than inflation. And to make matters even more complex, people tend to work fewer and fewer hours, uh, which is to say that today in the West, certainly, we work fewer hours than we used to 10, 20, 50 years ago. And so once you adjust incomes by the decline in number of hours worked, what you get is a uh, real hourly income, um, which has increased by 80%. Okay, so let's put some numbers on this. Gail and I looked at uh, resource prices between 1980 and 2017. During that time, nominal price of resources has risen by 63%, but the real price, adjusted for inflation, decreased by 36%. Over the same period of time, income per capita per hour increased by 80%, which means that the time price of resources declined by 65%. Now, what is a time price? Time price is basically just the real price of commodities, which is divided by real hourly income. So once you adjust uh, prices of resources, not just by inflation, but also by growing income, what you find is that resources have become 65% cheaper over the last 37 years or so. Then you guys expand that a little bit further to to develop uh, the price elasticity of population. Um, you just talk right. about how then changes in population also give us a, a little bit of a different perspective on resource abundance. Sure. The price elasticity of population, elasticity in economics is basically uh, just trying to figure out how does one variable respond to a change in another variable. So, for example, if you increase the price of uh, Coca-Cola by 100%, are people going to buy more of it or less of it? So you have two variables. You have the price and you have the demand. And uh, the reason why we thought this was a very interesting concept in economics to apply to this problem is because the problem can be summed up 
um, as follows. The, the, the basic, the fundamental difference between Ehrlich and Simon can be summed up as follows. If you increase population, do resources become more or less abundant, right? So what we did was to plug in the increase in global population over the last 37 years or so, and the world's population increased by 70%, and decrease in uh, the time price of resources, which was a decline by 65%, okay? So the population of the world increased by, as I said, 70%, but time price of resources has declined by 65%. So what that is that price elasticity of population is minus 0.9, or to put it in a, in, a, in a language that a normal person can understand, for every one person born to the world, the, sorry, for every 1% increase in population in the world, there was a 0.9% decrease in the time price of resources. So almost a one-for-one one offset, which suggests to us that Simon was actually correct. Uh, as population increases, prices of commodities decline, and that's what we call the price elasticity of population. This is a very counterintuitive sort of notion that more people would mean more abundance. Um, obviously, a lot of the work that you do at the Cato Institute and what we talk about here at IAR as well is that this progress is institutionally dependent and there's uh, markets and exchange play an important role in that. Um, you want to just talk a little bit about that element of it? Yeah, so it is counterintuitive only in so far as you perceive, not you, but as somebody perceives a human being as a, uh, as a liability as opposed to an asset. But if you look at human beings as assets, in other words, as, as entities that are capable of producing more than they consume, if you look at human beings as originators of groundbreaking ideas that can have fundamental consequences for standards of living. Say, uh, if you look at a baby as a potential discoverer of a uh, drug that will, that will um, cure cancer, or if you look at a baby and think of him or her as a potential discoverer of um, some sort of a, um, an agricultural breakthrough that will, increase, um, um, that will increase agricultural productivity, well, then, then uh, again, human beings become assets rather than liabilities, and that's at the root of the of of the Simon uh, perception of humanity, which is that more people lead to more ideas, more ideas lead to more innovations, more innovations include increase productivity, and increased productivity results in a higher standard of living. And in all those steps, I think that now we have enough evidence to say that Simon was in fact correct. Uh, the world is definitely a much more abundant place than it was in 1980. Uh, more and more intellectuals, more and more scholars, uh, more and more articles in the newspapers admit that today, in spite of all the problems that we have still in the world, we'll live at the best time in human history. And indeed, I myself run a website called humanprogress.org which tries to document the many ways in which the world is becoming a better place. So, you know, these two projects, the Simon Project and uh, the Human, Pro Human Progress Project, sort of, you know, work together. They are part of the same. 
And human progress is a fantastic resource for people like myself who work in this area. You guys have a great collection of data and constantly have articles just beating the drum about the good news of what's gone on in our world over the past uh, uh, several Thank decades. Thank you. And, and obviously, Simon was the original optimist. I mean, he was the guy who was saying that things were getting better and were only going to get better at a time when the entire world was gloomy um, in the 1960s and 1970s. And, uh, you know, so we are standing on, on, on the shoulders of a giant, um, but I'm happy to say that we are no longer alone. I mean, there are people like uh, Hans Rosling, unfortunately deceased now. We have um, people like Matt Ridley and Steven Pinker and Ron Bailey and many others who are, who are talking about the, same, uh, about the same thing. So the idea now is to, we are going to produce a uh, website called The Simon Project. It will be a part of the Human Progress Enterprise. And uh, we are going to have a conference every year on April 22nd, on Earth Day, to talk more about the, the Simon Insights. And we are going to be also launching every year, every year on April 22nd. We, we will have a new installment in uh, the Simon Abundance Index, uh, which is another part of the paper that uh, you and I uh, were talking about. And, um, and uh, uh, every year we will calculate a new value for the, for the Simon Abundance Index. And basically the Simon Abundance Index just measures the change in abundance of resources over a period of time. Uh, it represents the ratio of the change in population over the change in time price. And uh, what we have found is that between 1980 and 2017, the world has become um, um, 380% more abundant than it was. So we are looking forward to the second installment next year and to see whether, in fact, the world has become more or less abundant. Uh, we'll definitely be looking forward to uh, those events and obviously you guys continuing to put out this report. The uh, This material progress that you've talked about, uh, how important is this for developing countries? Something that we talk a lot about in energy policy, uh, even though a lot of our focus at IER is on what's going on here in the United States, but the availability of resources abroad is certainly important to poorer nations' ability to develop. Could you just talk a little bit about uh, the implications of your guys' findings here for that? Developing countries were not a specific uh, focus of the paper, but they are of great interest to human progress as a, as a website and to our scholarship. And there is no doubt that uh, that 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 global inequality is decreasing, which is to say that for the first time in 150 or 200 years, uh, developing countries are catching up with developed countries. In fact, the developing world now produces something like 58% of the global GDP, and the gap in income, in education, in um, in in health uh, outcomes, and so on and so forth, is decreasing between between the West and the rest. So there's no doubt that uh, developing countries have been the major beneficiaries of the period of globalization that started in 1980. And, and in our view, that's a good thing because uh, we, we sort of take, take a humanistic approach to things and we look at the decrease in absolute poverty in Africa and uh, increasing incomes in India and Bangladesh and China is a good thing because we don't want billions of people to be stuck in poverty and misery. 
Now, for the continued development of developing countries, they obviously the, the first thing they need to have is uh, well, they 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 need to uh, embrace uh, free trade and uh, institutions that protect uh, the rule of law and property rights. Uh, that's all and true, uh, but they also do need access to resources, and the most fundamental one, I think, is is energy. They do need access to cheap energy, and part of the problem that we have. Uh, in terms of discussion of global warming and the environmental um, questions is that it seems immoral to be asking developing countries to stop using fossil fuels when in fact fossil fuels are so cheap and they've been at the root of the Western success story. They powered the Industrial Revolution which took the West from uh, poverty to abundance and in my view it would be quite uh, wrong to insist that developing countries have now go, go to forego uh, the, 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 the blessings of cheap energy in order to retard their own economic growth. So in that sense, access to resources, in particular energy, is very important for developing countries. We're getting close to our time, but I want to bring this full circle and return to Julian Simon. He was able to foresee that a larger population would lead to greater resource abundance, uh, which in turn would translate to greater living standards. Uh, but he also believed that the public would have a hard time recognizing this and that most people would believe things are getting worse. Uh, was he right about that? Well, yes, he in fact, uh, he stated, and now I'm going to quote from the paper, uh, Simon believed that, um, this is what he said, uh, this is my long-run forecast in brief. The material conditions of life will continue to get better for most people in most countries most of the time indefinitely. I also speculate, however, that many people uh, will continue to think and say that the conditions of life are getting worse. And so, uh, perhaps a little cheekily, uh, Gail and I have come up with what we call the Simon Rule, which states that as population increases, the time price of most commodities will get cheaper for most people most of the time. Unfortunately, most people will assume the opposite. And in fact, if you look at public opinion polls, um, it is clear that a lot of people retain deep-seated pessimism about uh, not just the state of the world, but also future of humanity. Um, significant proportion of uh, uh, people uh, continue to believe that uh, we are going to run out of resources. So in that sense, I'm afraid that uh, we are going to struggle against sort of innate negativity of human beings uh, forever. Part of it has to do with the way that our brains are structured, but part of it, I think, also has to do with uh, um, the nature of our thinking about resources. Uh, most people think about resources in the way that, say, engineers think about resources, you know, which is to say, what is the total quantity of stuff that Earth has? But that's not the proper way to think about it, because we don't know how much stuff we have, and we cannot know how much stuff we have. Uh, that's because we should be thinking about resources as economists do in terms of prices. If prices go up, uh, what tends to happen uh, is that uh, the profit-seeking motive kicks in and we start developing substitutes, we start searching for new, uh, for new deposits, uh, we start uh, looking for different way of doing things. And so uh, there is no real reason to think that we are ever going to run out of anything. If anything becomes too expensive, we are just going to be, you know, come up with different way of doing things. When, when whale oil became too expensive, uh, we stopped using, we started using something else, but we didn't run out of whales. In fact, whales are doing very well. Thank you very much. My 
I don't want to be I don't want to be uh, glib about it. But my 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 main point is to say that it's very easy to think about human resources as though they were a fixed pie, but in fact, uh, human resources are not a fixed pie. We can increase the size of the pie through human ingenuity. We are doing it, and as a result, we are living in a much more abundant world than we used to. It seems to shift the focus toward human creativity and entrepreneurship. Indeed, and, indeed. And... That, I think that's a very good way to put it. Uh, our, um, uh, our policies not, uh, should shift from attempts to curtail population growth and from attempts to curtail consumption, and they should shift toward policies to increase um, human innovation. Uh, for example, uh, we could do so by identifying uh, smart people in society uh, from when they are very young and then giving them all possible opportunities in terms of best possible education in order to uh, in, in order to apply their talents, we can uh, come up uh, with policies uh, that, uh, that uh, encourage people to take risk and apply their ideas uh, in the marketplace and, and see if they can make a go of it. Um, rather than, rather than, for example, embracing the precautionary principle like the European Union does, and make it more difficult for innovation to be applied in practice. So there are some things that governments can do uh, in order to make it easier for people to to toy with ideas and see what works and what doesn't. And I think that's where our focus should lie. You can read the paper at the Cato Institute's website, and I encourage everybody to check out humanprogress.org. Uh, Marion, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.